So hello and welcome to IDcast, a pod talking all things industrial design. Now my name is Brad Harper and I am an industrial design recruiter. Um, but I'm only one third of the pod attempting to keep a little bit of a structure alongside regular ID casters in our own kind of podcast extraordinaire Emma Williams and senior industrial designer Drew Kendrick. Uh, Today we are talking with some good industry friends of mine Will Drake and Matt Ward. Uh, Will is a senior product design consultant with a little known startup in LV and Matt is going to be joining us from Shenzhen but has previously worked for the likes of Vax over here in the UK. So go grab yourself a drink. Matt is hopefully going to give us a little bit of light at the end of the Corona Tunnel, and we're all going to try our best in avoiding breaking any NDAs. So thank you. Enjoy. Hi, Matt. Hi. (laughs) Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Got Got an Estrella, so could be worse. Oh, you've got a beer. Now, now I feel left out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure where. Where's Will, Where's Will Drake? Oh, is he? Is he here? He's he's here. So you can stop sh- giving him compliments now. Says <laughs> he's in the room. Yeah, I don't. I don't want him. Right. Oh, there he is. Hello. Yay! Hi, Will. I've got you. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. How is everyone enjoying lockdown or not enjoying it? <laughs> Do you know what? It's not that bad. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, the elements of it completely suck and other bits are actually all right. Yeah, absolutely. So, we'll, so if you could mute Zoom. Done. And how's it go? you're doing up a flat aren't you this is what instagram keeps telling me <laughs> yeah i am this is um yeah i've i've done this room nearly um as you can see there's still cupboards to be sorted out but yeah outside outside this room it looks like a bomb's hit it there's walls being knocked down and everything so yeah it's absolute carnage at the moment so actually lockdown's quite useful because yeah. i can crack on with it so uh excellent so yeah good stuff and how's it like being back in london yeah, good. I I'll, I'll, I miss I miss the sort of joys of uh, of Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong more than China. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice to be near mates and um, and family and what have you. Although I can't see any of them at the moment. Um, so yeah, it, it is good to be back. It is good to be back. It's weird. The first week coming back was a real change. Like walking into the office in London on the first day, second day, actually, when I realized, oh, I don't live in Asia anymore. This is weird. Um, was was very strange. But it is nice to be back. Because you must have, because that's when I was off to New Zealand, wasn't it? Yes. So you, did you, when did you get, you went to New Zealand just as I moved back, didn't you? Because you dealt yeah, with yeah, the, yeah. the transfer for, to, uh, for the new job. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. God. Yeah. And now that... I can't even leave the house. Yeah. It's just what's going on. <laughs> that was this time last year. Yeah, it's yeah. mental. Yeah, I moved back in May last year. So it's nearly been a year. I don't, I don't know where the time's gone. Um, yeah, nice. So yeah. I'll introduce you. Um, so you know Matt, obviously. Yeah. Um, Emma is our like podcast extraordinaire. Um, she, she works within interior design, but thankfully knows all about audacity and things like that so um she is our kind of editing guru great and um drew is um a senior industrial designer within medical device oh, um 
So um, I'm sure we'll be talking all about that. And um, yeah, obviously, you know, Matt, because you worked with him for, for three and a bit years. Lived with him in a factory in the in the depths of China yeah. for, for three years. <laughs> Is that right? Like, do, people just, do people crash there as well? So we live we lived in yeah. There's a dormitory block that was for um, Cantonese and management staff, and Matt and I had a room in there. And then over the period that we were there, we were allowed to sort of do the place up a bit. So um, I tra- transformed the, what was the gym into an actual working gym. Before it was just a treadmill um, <laughs> and a couple of little dumbbells. But then we Matt and I sort of slowly kitted it out over the time we were there. So we had a pretty good working gym by the time we left. And then the common room, they let us put a kitchen in so that we could cook our own food rather than having to deal with factory food. Um, and then we'd escape for the weekends back down to either Shenzhen or I would go. I had a flat in Hong Kong that I, I kept because yeah. um, I could. Go, we could go down in the week as well. Um, so yeah, it was quite a bleak existence, but but quite an experience. I don't know how I managed four years looking back on it. I expect ended up yeah. planning to go out for a year or two and ended up yeah. doing four. Asia kind of gets hold of you. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, heard, I've heard similar. Like, how does that affect your creativity, though? I've been, I mean, because that, that sounds a lot like lockdown. Yeah, I, I quite, absolutely. And and I think that's why Matt and I are now out of there. Um, is Matt on the line? I can't hear him. I haven't heard his voice at all. I am. I was just about no. to button and say, you are. I was in. just about to button and he say, um, what, what Will's trying to say is that this isn't his first renovation job. Um, sees himself. <laughs> bit, bit of a Kevin McLeod. <laughs> Oh, I once did up a gym and now I'm doing up a flat. I was thinking more Florence well in Bern, mate, but all right. <laughs> yeah, either um, the role, mate. You take your pick. <laughs> yeah, Matt, to, to be fair, Matt and I kept each other sane for that the time that we were there. And, and I think in answer to your question, yeah, it really, we we weren't able to be, you're, you're much more, your creativity is coming through much more of an engine. We, we, we were engineers basically out there. We didn't have a huge amount of input into industrial design. Um, we had a small industrial design team that serviced our Asian clients. Um, but the majority of the ID would be done by our clients. Um, and then we'd kind of look after that for them. So the experience was much more about understanding manufacturing and getting stuff made in China. And Right. Our factory that it had its downsides, but there it was as Chinese factories go. It's it, it claims it's one of the better ones, um, and I think it, it 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 could. But at the end of the day, even though it was it was an Australian-owned company working in China, and I think at the end of the day, when your majority of your staff, you still got that sort of Chinese culture in there, trying to sort of push the boundaries and do things differently is still a challenge. Um, so yeah, it, it it was a definitely experience. And Matt is obviously, as you know, still out there, but he's moved into a much more mm. creative role as far as I understand. So I'll let him sort of talk about that. But uh, yeah. yeah. If, I, if I give you some kind of golden rules to the pod, Will, mm. was, um, you're allowed to swear. Um, so feel free to drop a couple of- Have I already, if, if have I already dropped one by accident? I didn't know I no, okay, no, 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 but just in case, just in case, Bollocks. just in case. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so if anyone is listening to this um, and you do find swearing, you know, a little bit kind of 
you know, offensive or whatever, they're probably not the pod for you, really, because um, I can't promise that I won't drop one. And I don't know if you'll, you'll probably drop one through at some point. So um... I feel like I have, but I, 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 I am, I am <laughs> so, honestly trying my best. I don't want so, it to be just so a yeah, dream. Anyone listening to this, um, and if we ask a question and you feel like it starts or could potentially break some sort of NDA, then just say, because the last thing I want to do is to ask something or conversation happens you think oh i might need work to take a look at this or something like that so uh, i know that's quite a big part of the industry so if it, it gets to a point where it's a bit more probably can't answer that then just just say so well what made you what made you want to go out to to china in the first place um yeah good, really good question um so i um after uni um i got um really lucky i got investment for my final year project and oh, wow. that was um uh, a long story about how it came about and, and what have you but to cut to the chase I that kind of slowed down and I had an angel investor who basically was like well go and get a job somewhere else um, so I was intrigued by wanting to work abroad and mm-hmm. I had spent a lot of time going out to China on that project and I had a, quite a few mates in, in Hong Kong already and over that period where we were deciding what to do whether the project was still going or not I thought, you know what, sod it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, start looking for for stuff in Asia. And then actually, um, Brad's company got in contact and um, sort of told me that there was this opportunity within a factory. I'll, I'll give you a fiver later, Will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it kind of went from there. I I then met um, a chap called Simeon Jupp, who was the uh, head of R and D there um he very experienced he was like one of the first dyson engineers he worked in all sorts of um different areas and i met him in london get him on, I think. yeah he's a, he's an interesting chap um did um yeah did, had a copy with him in london and he was like look it, you've got some unusual experience um why not so i thought you know what let's do it so up for the adventure um yeah jumped on a plane in fact the HR department from the company Heiko rang, sent me an email just before the flight saying, we don't think you should get on the flight because we don't have your visa sorted yet. So in classic Asia style, I was there sitting on the, on the tarmac worrying about whether I should stay on this flight or not. Anyway, we, we sorted it out and it was no problem. And um, yeah, like I said, I meant to be there for two years. I ended up being there for a year, which was, uh, sorry, for four years, which was, yeah, um, Probably because I think I enjoyed Hong Kong the most. Hong Kong is just the most amazing city. I don't was know it, if, been... if you staying? If you staying with someone in the rugby sevens? Uh, yeah, I've uh, well, I've done I'd done sevens once before. I'd gone out there because I was out there for work right. and being a big rugby right. fan myself. Um, and then I played out there while I was there. Yeah, I've done sevens many times. Um, I think yeah. five or six now. Um, yeah. that, that's a we won't w- talk about the boxing career, though, will we? No, no, that's not, that's not so great. It's not so great. <laughs> so, what, what is the record? Uh, three and three at the moment. Three, three and three. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But everyone, everyone bad. I've fought's been absolutely massive, and the only ones I've won are people right. in my size. <laughs> <laughs> is that so like a blue collar boxing or something different? Uh, yeah, I've done. Yeah, they were all white collar. One, that's I think, right, was, white collar boxing. Yeah, white collar. One was classed as something slightly better, but and I got a little bit of cash off the door. But yeah, the, the standard was still the same as white collar. Um, I didn't know whether to cool. introduce you as Will or Will Shake and Bake. Oh, was. What, Mate, you're, <laughs> you're really, 
You're really chucking me under the bus here. <laughs> oh, well. All good stuff. So, All good yeah. stuff. Oh, good. Right. So, and you're in London now with Elvie. I, I, I take it there may be one or two people, and, and literally one or two people that don't know who Elvie are. So, briefly, just tell us what you guys do and, uh, and that kind of stuff. Oh, God, I should have rehearsed this if my boss hears this. Um, so we um, we make uh, products um, for women, uh, mainly around healthcare. We have two primary products at the moment, um, which is Pump, which is our fa- flagship product, which is a wearable silent breast pump. Um, and then we wear, make a pelvic floor exerciser, Kegel trainer. Um, both are smart, so connect to the phone so you can monitor your progress and monitor your milk output. Um, so yeah, that, that's us in a nutshell. We're, I think we're the first wearable silent breast pump. We've got a little bit of co- um, company out there in terms of competition, but in terms of the silent area that we claim, um, we're, we're kind of the first and the only, but mm-hmm. I think the big boys will start coming for us soon. So mm-hmm. it's about us sort of staying ahead of the curve, um, investing heavily in R&D at the moment. Um, mm. Not sure. Probably can't tell you much else <laughs> other than that. <laughs> no, I, I, I'll, um, I'll pick up on that as well because uh, there's the things that I want to like reply because uh, I used to work for Medela. Oh, okay. For, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. For a year or so out in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, and there was a couple of things you know you said about uh, the adventure and everything. That was basically why I went there. Yeah. Um, but also because of their uh, human-centered design approach, I was just sort of I was super excited about that. Yeah. And, um, while that's the the kind of the, the ethos of philosophy that I believe in, that was the first company that was really tooled up for it mm. as well. Um, so yeah, I had heard of, of LB because of your uh, because of the, the, the silent pump, yeah, and that was always a big concern because obviously a pump that you might use uh, and the noise that they make uh, in a if if there isn't a, a, a breastfeeding room in a building, you know, sometimes people end up in cubicles. Yeah. Uh, and those noises become very, very suspicious. It's similar, like a similar way to the products that I work on at the moment. So at the moment, I work for um, a company called Combatech that makes, uh, among other things, um, self-administer catheters. Um, and some of the wrappings on those things sound like sound like foil. So if you're in a men's cubicle unwrapping foil. Again, you, you, you're going to arouse suspicions. People might think innocently that, oh, you're eating a bag of crisps in the toilet. That's weird. Uh, but they might think they might think uh, other things as well. So it's like, uh, it's interesting how those, like a sound in a product becomes a real driver for the, um, like for the experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's been the guys, obviously I, I joined the company pretty um, after the launch of Pump. Um, so I currently work on improving it. Um and, and sort of what we call it continuous improvement. And um, yeah, I mean, the chaps that did it, they've done an incredible job just sort of sourcing the, the, the way that the pump works. It's, it's a really complicated product. And um, it's, I mean, without sounding cheesy, it's really helping people and changing people's lives in terms of the whole breastfeeding workflow. Um, and that, that ability to be able to just take the pump with you everywhere is, has been great. And like you said, that, kind of user-centered design was what attracted me to the company when um again i'll uh give you another uh link uh brad's company got in touch with me again for the lv job <laughs> when i was ready to move back to england so i've got a lot to, to thank them too for um but yeah so we um 
stop, yeah. Will, stop. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> coming ca- coming back and moving moving back to to the UK for that job was was um, it was kind of a no brainer because I had no idea about breast pumping and women's needs in that respect, and that opportunity to sort of um, be involved in a company that's sort of pushing the boundaries like that because you go into product design thinking oh, I'm going to change the world and then that was a big problem with with actually working out in in China and I'm sure Matt will will um, will agree with me on this it was the same for him working for a company that yes was a really interesting company in terms of what they did but the amount of landfill we were making out there i mean yeah we were mm-hmm. working for some quite cool brands um camelback was one of them um but at the end of the day those products were finding their way back into landfill and i think yes making a plastic bottle i suppose you could say that you're stopping people from buying single-use bottles but other than that the other products we were developing were what i struggled with a little bit over that four-year period so it was nice to work for a company and i suppose you working in medical will probably feel the same that um being able to to do something that you kind of feel in the morning you get up and you're like i'm actually doing something that's really helping someone here um is that quite rare is that quite rare would you say within industrial design when you actually generally have that feeling of I think it's a, um, I think it's something that all of us grapple with. Um, hmm. I, I think across the board, um, there's no one product that you can be completely happy with. At the end of the day, we make we make plastic pro- products. A lot of us, <laughs> um, and I think yeah, um, I, I think that's. I drew. I don't know what what how you feel about that, but no, no, uh, you, you're quite right, really. I mean, most of my uh, most of my training, most of my career has been injection molded polymers. Uh, most of which are single use and especially because they've been medical in nature mm. a single use and then yeah end up in landfill because either the nature of the polymer or the nature of the use of the product means that it can't go into recycling so yeah that's a focus for well i think for any medical device company right now is how they address that mm. but um your, your wider point of uh what you know what you're doing with your skills and how are you making a difference like i've designed things that um, I don't know. We talk about how they prevent further life loss. So I've worked on um, among the like weapons and accessories for weapons, and you're like, mm. nah, I don't, I don't feel fantastic about that. And there are ways that you can construct a sentence uh, so that it feels better for you if that's if that's what you need to do. Um, but I don't know. It doesn't feel as good as working on. Um, like a replacement knee or something like yeah. that, right? Because you're yeah, like, yeah. okay, someone can now walk. Has your opinion kind of changed in terms of designing things that you know are just purely for landfill? Obviously, that's something you felt is kind of happening in your career in the past. Is that something that's probably now more at the forefront of a designer's mind than maybe five, ten years ago, where that wasn't something that maybe was part of people's thinking? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think. Um... I think also with things like, um, is it Blue Planet or the the, mm-hmm. the one? The, the Attenborough kind of. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. things like that. I think people's education now. I mean, for example, my father, who was never really that. Um, he, I mean, he was aware of wanting to recycle and what have you. But then he watched that documentary and all of a sudden he's become absolutely militant about it. He doesn't have throwaway razors anymore. He uses like the, the little. Um, oh, here's Matt. Um, he uses the um, the the metal ones that slide into the old school style ones. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah. for someone of his age, who he's in his sort of mid sixties now, to all of a sudden change, I think, yeah, I, I definitely feel that compared to when I was at university, there's definitely a much bigger. Um, it's just everyone knows about it so much more. People are much better educated definitely. through stuff that's come through the media, um, which is definitely interesting. Um, would you say as well, Will? Would you say there's like a cultural difference as well between China and the UK? Would you say maybe China are a bit ahead of the game when it comes to environmental, or otherwise, like likewise, is the UK a bit more sort of ahead of the game when it comes to environmental issues? Or what would you think? I mean, that's really, that's again really interesting. So when um, when we were in the factory, I'm just thinking. So we were in this to give a bit of description. We were in this um, industrial area about and 50 minutes from the Shenzhen border. So if, if anyone's been there, probably a lot of designers have, uh, from the Futian border, we'd get a company bus up to the factory. Now, I remember being interested that on our street, which was, I can, can't think of a better word than bleak, there were recycling bins. Whereas Hong Kong is terrible for it. So you have these big orange bins on the street, they're on every corner, and there's no, there's very rarely an option for a recycling uh, version. There's there's two different types of bins. The orange ones are everywhere, and the recycle ones are sort of every few streets. Which I thought was really interesting that China, in the depths of China, up in an industrial area, that there's that those those sort of bins are going in. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. And then also there's the I mean the US sends a lot of its waste to China and what China's now basically turning around and saying, no, we're not, we're not going to take it as far as I've, I've seen <laughs> in some of the media, which is, is also interesting. I, I wouldn't know definitely in terms of factories, um, what goes on in a factory, no one knows. Um, we used to claim that a certain amount of our regrind would be used back into parts, but, but a lot of manufacturers or a lot of clients would say no regrind um, and just for anyone who's listening regrind is is any wasted plastic part is reground back into pellets and then feed fed back into the manufacturing process mm-hmm. now the problem with that is that you can sometimes reduce the structural um, rigidity or, or, or properties of a part it, it can by adding regrind it just lowers the the quality of the of, of the part um, that's specifically been designed in a specific way with a specific material. So a lot of factories were, are told by their clients to not use any regrind, which mm-hmm. is bad because these clients are probably... happen. Yeah, and these clients, are pro- especially big companies, are probably promoting the fact that mm. they are sustainable, etc. when actually they're still adding a lot of regrind back into the, the system. I'm trying to think what the term is. It's called green something. There's a term for it. Um, where it's that kind of whole we're, we're sustainable kind of facade. But yeah. The reality is actually far, far different. Yeah. At the, um, at the end of the day, for these big, big multinationals, they've got investors to keep happy. And their bottom line is 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 what um, makes the decision for them. Um, and it's about, yeah, if you unless you can get more quality out of the part, the, the, then you're at the end of the day, you're going to be uh, doing what what the boss tells you at the top um, yeah, yeah. it's definitely getting yeah, better it's definitely getting better yeah. and certain companies are taking much more initiatives but i mean i mean the big the big guys um i'm not going to say any names i don't want to get sued <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm sure they're they're not really buckling down as hard as they could on these these no. issues 
I think that just often cool. speaks to the sort of the position you're in as a designer and that you get to make uh, a certain amount of decisions, but ultimately you're limited in how well you can put those into practice because, you know, there's wider things at play like um, company policy or, you know, demands on the material. So um, the, the thing you mentioned about regrind, uh, certainly in implantable medical devices, you, it's 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 not it's not approved by the FDA in a lot mm. of the time. So you, if you even if you could get the same performance out of that uh, molded part, you still you wouldn't be clear to to use it for anything. So, and then again, the effects of doing that even in prototyping mean that you you're limited in the knowledge you can gain. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's there's things like that. There's usually you know a pretty reasonable uh, justification behind them. It's just that. Yeah, your uh, your ethics sometimes have to take a walk. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> to get the reality through. Just just to get Matt in whilst he's here, um, is uh, can you can you hear us, Matt? Everything okay? You back? Yeah. yeah. What what happened? What happened? This is I don't know, but this is the second coming. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was getting. I think I think the uh, VPN. I had an issue on my phone with the VPN. Classic, classic China Wi-Fi v- VPN issues. <laughs> exactly. But I've been listening to to the whole the whole thing, um, and quite eager to jump in, but I couldn't because I wasn't on on the line. Now's but your um, you talked about you talked about um, recycling materials, and Will touched on um, closed loop uh, material. But towards the end of my time at Heiko, I actually got quite involved in um in following what was happening with our scrap material so i can talk a little bit about it um and they actually sent me to um it's there's a ex- exhibition convention uh, that happens every couple of years in in germany called called k and k is a plastics and rubber um expo where all the major players in in plastics and rubber will exhibit all their new technology and um, the focus this year, well, it was last year, actually, because I went there in October, but the focus was um, circular economy. Mm. I don't know if that's the buzzword that you were talking about, Brad. Oh, I've heard that term. I have no circ- idea what it means, but I hear it on people. I see it all the time, circular economy. So- that's it. So circ- circular economy is becoming um, more and more important, and it's basically, uh, well, as the word suggests, it's you're using stuff and then you're trying to put it back into the... Um, into the system mm. without uh, contributing to environmental harm. So uh, I got involved in uh, basically monitoring the the scrap that that was being produced by a factory in well Heiko. But um, I got I got an overview of, of what happens with scrap when it when it's being produced in a in a factory in in China. So it's quite interesting to get an insight into all that. And as Will said. A lot of the time, material gets closed looped and put back into into parts, but then you you're um, changing the material properties. Mm. But then also, what what companies might do is they might look to sell some of their scrap material to recycling companies to recover some some money, or um, they might repelletize it and store it and use it later. So it's not always closed loop directly next to the machine. And put straight back into the injection mold machine there and then. It could be repelletized and and, and stored mm. for a period of time. Remixed in. So there's well. there's a number of things that yeah 
factories would do with with scrap material. So just a bit left, well, a bit different. But could you just give us an understanding of of what life has been like in China for the last? I know you was in the UK over the year, but what what is life like now? What has life been for the last couple of months? Because I don't know about you guys, but some of the reporting on China over here is a bit. You don't quite know whether it is back to normal or whether it's kind of all swept under the kind of the rug, so to speak. From your own perspective, mm. is life back to normal? Hopefully, you can give us a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel um, in terms of what's going on. Yeah, I think I think the reason why people are speculating is because they look at it as it's the largest population in the world. Mm. So, how on earth have they managed to control that? amount of people so quickly and then get it back on its Mm. feet when you look over in europe you've got italy spain um, and now france and the uk that are really struggling so people are always Mm. going to point the finger and be like well if we're struggling over here so bad how how have they managed to solve the problem and it's the simple answer is technology Mm. we we don't have the technology in the west that they have in the software the machine learning like databases that are tracking all the people and they're using um, their contact tracing everyone basically mm. through through WeChat. That for those that aren't familiar with WeChat um, that are listening, it's basically a smartphone application that was developed by a Chinese company called Tencent, and its basic function is a, is a is chat function. How we'd use WhatsApp. It's, in, a, in the it's West. a one fit tool, isn't um, it? But then it. It is because it does everything. So you can, I don't know, you could book movie tickets or or book a train on it, or you could send money from your bank to to a friend. So you, it's like a a life tool mm. through through one single app. Um, but what what that allows Tencent to do is work with work with the government to provide data, and it's all in one central database. And they could contact trace anyone that was reported sick. And then they could work out where where they'd been because everywhere you go, or during the during the um, the outbreak, everywhere you go, you have to scan QR codes. Mm. So, for example, if you board the subway train, you you scan a QR code that then tells the central system that you've got on that train at that time mm. um, from this location to that location. So, if you were to then go to the hospital next week and and report ill, they could contact trace everywhere you've been who you've been in contact with and therefore send a message to those individuals and tell them to self yeah, self isolate so yes yeah so they've they may have all these people but they've got the technology that they can use to very quickly nip it in the bud and get it under control yeah. so now as to answer <laughs> yeah yeah so to answer your question um how's how are things here now it it has returned to normal mm. more or less i'd say it's like 80 90% of the way there people are still going out in masks because it's um, it's being enforced by local authorities if you don't go out in a mask you you can be detained um and there are still um temperature checks when you go into shopping centers and, and places like that but I, are they really necessary now probably not mm. because the the number of cases is now massively reduced. I think there's only a few imported cases coming in now where you've got students that are returning from overseas uh, and, they're, and they're being taken in sick. But other than that, 
domestic cases, I don't think there are any new ones popping up. Uh, and yes, the, the numbers aren't always going to be accurate because tr- they may have the technology, but there's always going to be people in rural communities that, that don't make it to hospital mm. in time. Maybe there's people that are just falling ill at home in a rural community. Maybe they don't have the money to get themselves to hospital because China doesn't have a, a national health service like the UK where it's all funded. A lot of people have to pay for their own health care. So not everyone's going to make it to a hospital. So, you know, people are always saying, oh, the numbers are, the numbers are fudged. Mm. They're not real. But that's... Are our numbers it, accurate? It, it, it's different. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. Are, are there, is everyone in Italy um, making it to hospital? Mm. Maybe they're old and frail and their family aren't there to support them and they can't get to a hospital. So I think it's it's the same situation. Everywhere. Yeah, I think especially in the UK, because I think a lot what a lot of people are wor- worried about now is how, especially like I know in our area, if you have symptoms, they explicitly tell you to stay at home. You don't need to be tested. So then they're not a statistic. So it's kind of like, I don't understand how people can judge China for doing that, but it's, it happens everywhere. You know, it's not really just China that, exactly. you know, so it's it's quite hypocritical of people to be saying that as well. Yeah, I think that's a lot of the perception of the self and that, um, you know, as uh, like Britain has this view that we handle our own things and that, uh, you know, we're self-possessed as a, as, as a collection of individuals and that we're not, um, you know, a, a herd operative. Um, and yet, I mean, the sort of the shift towards uh, sort of a willing deferral of decision making over the last few elections and so on. So I would say speaks against that, but um yeah, the yeah uh, the working class chip on my shoulder is speaking for me at the moment, so I'll wind my neck in. <laughs> yeah, if we. Um... But you you can also look at um you can also look at South Korea for example. You know that's a country that um has a very different uh, way of life to China, in that the um the governments operate the country very differently. But even South Korea, they've they've made a a prime example of of how this virus can be contained very fast. They were on a huge upward curve. Uh, back in February, um, number of new cases that were coming through were looking pretty bleak. Mm. And within a very short space of time, just because they were testing people um, and they were, you know, getting it out there and getting it done, they managed to slow the slow the curve very quickly. And now they're in a pretty good position. And they haven't even had to put the country in lockdown mm. this whole time. Everyone's just been going to work, doing their thing, and they've got themselves out the end of the tunnel how is, and, and also Singapore as well. How, how is lockdown impacting you guys as designers in terms of the, your work, um, the process and whatever? How have the last few weeks, particularly the last few weeks, how has it been? It's not easy. Um, not easy at all. I mean, m- a lot of what I'm doing is, is workshop and testing based. So mm. I'm, I'm struggling a lot. We're actually, um, a lot of the work we're doing is mainly looking at our process. Um, because it's just, I'm lucky that I've got quite a few tools here and I'm able to, with the house building going on, I'm able to, to get on, <laughs> get on with a few bits and pieces. Um, but the lack of being able to prototype as easily, um, and test, with the test equipment that we've got is, is not easy at all. Um, mm. you can do CAD. Yeah, of course. Um, but 
I think every designer will tell you it's CADS only gets you so far. It's actually having the part in your hand that makes it possible yeah. to really understand if you're um, if you're making the right steps towards a good design. Um, mm. So yeah, it's definitely been hard for me. Yeah, is there also a concern that you know if this goes on for a long period of time, is anyone going to buy my product? Is that part of people's thinking as well, or also still the element of comfort of you know we'll get through this and. No, I haven't got as far as I mean I, I don't suppose that affects um, medical devices in the same way yeah. because the demand for that is in terms of from an individual's point point of view that's steady you know but there will be designers out there for sure that you know if you're, oh yeah consumer yeah. product for example you know you must be thinking crap you know no one's going to buy this no one you know no that, that must be a problem and a concern i can un- i can imagine and i'm i'm just guessing here i would say that consultancies are probably going to get a lot harder hit than in-house design teams mm. because in-house design teams assuming you're in a company that's of a certain size um you're always thinking right once we're out of this we need to have a product products ready to go so you need to keep the design process ticking over consultancies are probably losing their work i mean a consultancy project can range from anything from a a couple of weeks all the way up to however long it takes to get a product all the way to market depending on how much they're taking on but i can imagine that yeah if they're not um if that those smaller projects are not going to be coming in as quickly um Mm. so i can understand that consultancies are probably getting very worried whereas in-house design i mean we're for example we're definitely um no one's no one's being let, let go no one's on furlough within our team um everyone's sort of full steam ahead let's try and keep things going as much as possible to to, yeah. to get products out because we're we're still a startup yeah. so we need to keep investing on the next product um because mm. we can't just rely on our there's own. no concern around no concern around funding or, or that kind of thing <clears throat> um well that's very positive yeah, no, I, I, I don't think uh, in terms of funding, I, I that's shouldn't that, affect you guys. Yeah, it shouldn't affect us. I mean, that's all and all. That's probably a, a above my pay grade to know all of that. But from what <laughs> we've been told, we're like guys, business as usual. Keep doing yeah, as yeah. much as you possibly can. Um, we know it's hard, but we're here to support you. We've got we're, we're at that level now where we've we've started employing enough project managers and what have you who are able to kind of look at how our workflow is and try and like give us us the support we need to keep going, Um, which is good. I think if we were smaller, it would be really tough because you'd be at home. You haven't got someone there to bounce ideas off. The one big problem, though, is Zoom meetings. There's just too many of them. I don't have time to get on with my (laughs) own work. Yeah, I don't have time to get on with my own work because I'm in a bloody meeting. Um, and I think mm. I think that's not just me. I think that's across the board. Every every industry, yeah, every company. Spoken to. Zoom are going say- ka-ching, but <laughs> <laughs> everyone else. Yeah. 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 What, what about over in China? For like, we've been using Teams for a while now, and we've all been getting used to doing these kind of uh, video calls. And because the nature of the business is quite international anyway, it means that we do have um, you know video conferences quite frequently. Um, but I'd say like I'm at the opposite end um, of a, of my project work at the moment, in that we're we're basically planning over the next ten weeks we're planning the far horizon uh, pipeline stuff. So like not even the products, maybe not even product areas, but like what are the things that we need to go and research? What's you know what are the trends? And that's a lot of um, discussion. It's a lot of uh, desktop research and that type of thing. So it's 
it's actually it's fine. It's good. Works better at home, which is why I mean I'm, I'm maybe uh, in a minority here for this uh, in terms of doing creative work during lockdown. But the things that we're working on are like sketches, uh, conversations, and and reading. And actually, that works better being away from the office. So. It, it, it has made us kind of reflect on what's the value of being in the same in the same place. And there's there's a lot of value in being in the same place at the same time working together. But there's also a lot of value in being able to go, right, I'm going to go over there um, and, and shut down and do this over here. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm I'm hoping that we can take take some of that with us when we come out of this and be able to be more flexible in terms of not just the where's and the when's, but like the type of work we're doing, what's the best setup for that? Go, go and pursue that. I wondered, Matt, have you seen any impact in sort of post-lockdown or, or in terms of changes to working culture in that way at all? Um, yeah, not not so much in that way, but it's certainly hit business over here, um, as, but as it will do everywhere. Uh, but I joined... I joined this new company that I'm at in uh, at the end of end of February, and already so I've been there for what seven weeks, and, and already they're um, they're having to cut staff, they're having to um, shut down portions of the of the office that they're leasing in the city and move move people to the to the factory. In terms of the like the day to day work, I haven't seen any impact. People are still going into the office and doing work as as normal but the business is certainly being hit and this is a this is an example of a business that has a huge amount of cash flow is doing very well and is backed by the government and even they're having to make cuts so it's it's a it's not a good time for for everyone in china is it a weirdly exciting time in the sense of whilst it is a little bit doom and gloom everything kind of needs to be rethought through everything kind of needs to be redesigned in many respects because the way that we're going to work and the way we're going to interact is going to completely change. So as a designer, whilst it is a bit worrying, is it also quite exciting in the sense of everything that's going to be changing kind of post post Corona, you know, it's not going to be the same. So can there be excitement that you can take from that? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it'll be, it'll be exciting when, when the West um, gets back to full business mm. again, and they start working with um, with Chinese suppliers again, and we see how if there's an impact on on that relationship, mm. and and how may, maybe maybe we'll we'll do things differently, maybe ways of working will change. Uh, who knows? But I think that'll be a, an interesting time mm. when when the East and the West start doing business again. Yeah. I suppose even beyond that, though, I mean, this is sort of. <sighs> caused uh yeah there's the economic effect for sure but I, I i think i'm interested to see what the cultural change will be and what people uh you know what people want to get back to and what they want to leave behind as brad says you know for a lot of us as uh, as designers we're sort of trained creative professionals so change being handed to us even if it's as as you say like it's full of doom and gloom it's you can't help but try and look for the opportunities in it and the only limiting factor on on those uh, opportunities is how ready the rest of the world is to to get on board. Um, same with any sort of uh, new design or new uh, innovation, for want of a better word, is what's the readiness levels for it to be taken up 
in terms of in terms of china will when you came back in terms of you you had a couple of years there how did you feel that set you up for coming back to the uk so you've got quite a, you know, a decent job now here in the uk market how do you think that kind of set you up in terms of what you learn out there and to anyone that's listening that's maybe thinking about one day going to china or just the far east in general what advice would you give them um i would say oh that's a good question um i i think if for example if you're um on looking to do a year out at uni or you're about to graduate i'd 100 get out to asia um whether it's mm. china um i've got I know people who are working probably in a slightly different industry in, in clothes manufacturing in um, near Ho Chi Minh. Um, I'd just be like, get out to Asia, just experience it in terms of the stuff that you learn with dealing with it. The way that the East does business is so different and it's different each different country you go to as well. So China might be different, Vietnam might be different. Um, it's all very similar in, in the fact that it's it's very alien to what we're used to, but they are learning incredibly quickly. I mean, you, you've only got to look at how quickly they're, they're building their infrastructure to see how keen they are to, to learn and to, to get better. I mean, the Chinese products um, like phones and consumer electronics that you can buy now are giving your, your big boys like your apples and your samsung's a, a run for their money in terms of how quality they are and what the functionality in them mm. so i'd say get out there learn about how the how manufacturing works um i mean i was out there for a period of time but i could have stayed out you could stay out there for the whole of your career and still see something new and have a new mm. scenario that you've got to get through um matt's obviously still doing it now but like working and living in a factory as much as it was not much fun um yeah i learned a great deal um some really useful skills that um will stand me in good stead although i mm. it it's weird that i've been back nearly a year now and i still haven't gone back obviously china is uh, everywhere's under lockdown at the moment so that's put slightly put the put that back a step but i think um yeah, I would have expected to go back quite quite soon afterwards, but I just it hasn't ended up going going that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, sorry, I've dribbled think, on there a no, bit. That's all right. Do you think you've learned things that maybe if you stayed in the UK system and you followed the path you would have done anyway, do you think your learning is now completely different to if you would have just stayed here in the UK, got a job in London or whatever? where where is the difference would you say yeah absolutely i mean i took a very different route with trying to set up my own company straight off uni which was um brash and i learned a great deal but in hindsight doing the sort of i i just didn't want to do the standard right i'm going to go work for dyson for a few years i'm going to go and work for i know one of the other like shark ninja in terms of the product design engineer roles and i kind of fell into that through um into the manufacturing role through having gone out to China a lot. And I think, sorry, I don't know if I'm going off a slight tangent here, but um, that sort of route has, I've definitely feel like I've missed out a little bit on certain things by not going and getting that grounding from Dyson, like the school of Dyson, as they call it, or another company similar that has like, Matt was at Vax, for example, um, and getting that grounding. I definitely felt like I missed out there, but I definitely felt that, you could drop me anywhere in china and i'd i'd work it out 
Um, mm. I'd, I'd, I've sort of, it sounds weird, but I, I just sort of have techniques now of, right, right, I'm, gonna, I'm in the middle of nowhere, my phone's died. How the hell am I going to get back to my hotel or something like that? And somehow you work it out. Um, <laughs> and I've been in, yeah. I think there's a story there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's many stories. For another day. <laughs> there's, there's many stories from Brad, uh, from Asia, Brad, which yeah. we won't go into. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a crazy like the whole. We could start a spin-off podcast. <laughs> um, <for> Asia stories, <laughs> bedtime stories in Asia. We actually, sorry, yeah. I was just going to ask, like, um, obviously, I'm I'm new to sort of industrial design, um, but if someone was to be interested to um go do a placement or go work in china um i'm thinking now from someone who's never worked abroad is there some kind of language barrier that you had to overcome or did you find it quite easy to transition into another culture so um there's definitely you go first well i I was gonna i was gonna lead you into it i think both of us intended when we landed in china right let's learn chinese we bought the books i bought i went to a couple of lessons and within about three weeks i'd given up um my chinese (laughs) is virtually non-existent um matt has a chinese fiance now and his chinese is getting pretty good but um yeah i can just about do pleasantries and i think if my uh, like heiko is a very it calls itself very western run factory so all the management um are either cantonese or singaporean or malaysian or brits aussies americans so all meetings that have a westerner in have to be in english was the rule um so that because communication to all our western clients was was paramount um so in that respect, I'm probably not a good example because I didn't have to learn. I, I'd probably say that's just one slight regret um, is that I didn't force myself to learn, but it, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And if I'd had the time, um, but by the time it got to Friday and I'd been in a factory for, for five days, all I wanted to do was get down to China, get to Hong Kong and get across that border and, and go and have fun, yeah. um, which is a very bad way to, to, to have, but I had an amazing time out there. But you do, you kind of congregate to what you know and like the, the sort of social life in Hong Kong is amazing. Matt's done a much better job of ingraining himself into what's going on in Shenzhen. Um, and he can probably explain better. But sorry, again, I've got a long-winded way of, exp- of answering your question. Um, if you go out there, I think it's you've just got to go there thinking, if you're worried, say, for example, you've never lived away from home before, um, just get stuck in. Um, it'll be tough. And just try and, like, go. There's especially Shenzhen, there's plenty of... Um, I, I found a rugby club in Shenzhen, and there's loads of people involved, like, people involved in it uh, both brits and um and french and then chinese as well so like i met them they all speak pretty good chinese but because we were stuck up in the factory so we didn't get to meet sort of local expats in in shenzhen whereas hong kong was obviously hundreds thousands mm. so yeah just get stuck in really it, it, you'll you'll work it out just don't just um just don't get worried about it and if you're a bit lonely um try and go out and join a club or something like that mm. i found was the best thing 
Um, Can I add one little bit to that as yeah, well? Yeah, go for it. The way you described your experience of going out as far as China, because it's really, really similar to my experience of moving to Switzerland. Okay. Whereas I'm like, I had an A-level in French, so I thought, I'll be fine. But the part of Switzerland I moved to, they spoke German. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone speaks English, no matter where you go. Of course they do. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, there's a huge expat community there, like an international one as well. So most of the friends we made, we made good uh, Swiss friends, but we also made friends from Australia. uh, Like, yeah, a a broad palette, um, which was fantastic. And we just didn't have that in, uh, you know, in North Wales and Chester at, <laughs> growing up. So it was, it was really cool. Different really Europe, right? And just that thing of, as you say, going overseas, you just learn so much about, um, not just about a different way of working, but different lifestyles and things as well. And I think that, I think they're so closely linked. Um, mm. that it's super helpful. I would fully recommend it to anyone, especially if you're at that graduate level where, you know, you can kind of roll the dice a little bit more definitely do it yeah um, but like i i mean in in contrast i think to, to give a bit of grounding to what what we experienced in china and i'd assume that matt's um new company is probably a little bit more liberal but the factory considering the r&d department was run by a brit we were we had to turn up with um no jeans you had to wear you had to be company branded so if you weren't wearing a company polo you'd have to wear um this this awful waistcoat that you put over the top um that was made as cheap as it possibly could be um so you had to have the uniform on and then headphones weren't allowed in the office so we used to get told off regularly for having our headphones on because you're just trying to block out the noise in a busy chinese office so like in that in that respect and and everything is done in like the chinese are very good at keeping their like ducks in a row everything has to be done by process but in terms of that collaborative, right, let's get around the table and like hash this out and sort of chuck ideas around, it just doesn't really happen like it, like you'd expect. Mm. Um, like having a sort of stand up meeting where you all just talk about what's going on, like we used to here, n- never really happens. Um, mm. It's set meetings, you turn up, there's, you go through what's, what's there. Normally that turns into an absolute shit show in terms of, Everyone speaking. There we go. Sorry. There, there we go. That's there. There we go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Matt, have you got anything to add to that in terms of what the like, what it was like to work in terms of the working culture within the within the factory? In comparison to where I am now, or in comparison to I was well, I was going to ask you what what it's like in your new job, just because my only experience oh, is Heiko. Um, so I was wondering if Heiko is just specific, specifically old school in that respect, um, and whether your new place is is much more sort of relaxed and sort of liberal in that in that side of things. Well, what what you said about um, how in the UK we'll often stand around a table and sort of hash out a problem that's definitely a um, a cultural thing mm. I've noticed. You, what you said about um, everything being done in a meeting that's definitely uh, often the case out here is it's a a lot more scheduled and time is allocated to uh, sit and solve a problem rather than it just being on the fly at at someone's desk Um, but this new company I'm at now the um, design team is being led by um, a Korean chap who has a lot of experience in in large large companies all over the world Um, and he 
he seems to be running things a little differently to, to the traditional um, Chinese way of working. And he sort of encourages that more um, spontaneous chat. Like he'll, he'll be walking around the office and he'll just come and drop in at someone's desk and we'll start having a chat about, about a product at someone's computer screen, which that's, that was different from what I've experienced elsewhere in, in China. So That's good. That's like a, a sort yeah. of step forward in, in, in terms of yeah what we're used to, which, as like I said, it, it surprised me when our both our managers when we were there were both what well, one was Aussie um no one was Aussie one was Brit and the other and then Simeon is also so I, I you'd assume I suppose they were at the level where they weren't sort of really like the 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 mid-level employees weren't or lower level employees like we are we were 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 sort of being encouraged to have that sort of collaborative sort of more creative thing but also I suppose back to Drew's question from earlier on that we, we weren't doing hugely creative work we we were no, running through it. the checklist right this is what needs to be done let's get this product to market um so i suppose that's exactly it's it's that's kind of the other side of it um Every, everything's very process driven so it, it made sense to go through it in a more structured way rather than at the front end when you're designing a product um whether that's in-house or in a consultancy i think it, you need that more creative open way of working but we, we were just we were going mm. from a to b weren't we Re- realizing a concept um well realizing a product that had been brought to us in a state where it's already been designed mm. we're just making it happen is that down to personal preference so in terms of working in a process driven place or working in somewhere that's a bit more creative and a bit more open is that just down to personal preference as a designer yeah, definitely i think so it's, it, yeah, definitely. I, I can't imagine. I've, I didn't work at Dyson, um, but I, I can imagine at Dyson they do. It's pretty process driven. I, I think something that was quite interesting for me when we were out there was um, was the fact that dealing with one of our one specifically uh, our, the main client that Matt and I both worked on was um, American, and their engineering team and their design team were very separate. So ID was done handed over to engineering. I mean, we had, I think while we were there, we had two industrial designers come out and that was more to just meet us and see the factory and so they could see some stuff getting made. The engineers were out regularly. And I think that that talking of culture changes in terms of working within the design industry, from what I've seen in the UK, uh, I can't talk for sort of Germany and, and other places in Europe, but from the UK, industrial designers and engineers are quite there's there's a certain level of understanding from both and a lot of people overlap i mean i've become more of a product design engineer now so Mm, there's a much more of a sort of understanding of what you're going through and kind of that that process whereas i mean we found and i'm trying not to not to say their name uh when we found with we're working with this specific um bottle manufacturer they um <laughs> they they were very much i mean I, I mean they were great don't get me wrong like lovely bunch absolutely found them fantastic to work with um but i did find it very weird that it was literally industrial design was done hand over to engineers let them run with it they'll make it not my problem mm. and i thought that attitude was very different to how we're educated in the uk as well mm. Is that the advice you would give to any 
graduate designer listening to this, junior designer. Hundred percent. Got to get. You've got to expose yourself to everything. You know. I always come back to the um, desirability, viability, uh, feasibility overlapping Venn diagram, and I think if you're yeah, if you're a product designer, um, you you're going to specialize in a section of of that for sure. Um, but I think. Uh, but that would just be your natural inclination and your uh, experience that you get over the years. But I do think that if, you, if you've if you got a blind spot in one of those, like if you don't know about um, the business requirements or about the manufacturing requirements or about the humanistic requirements, then you're, you're going to miss a huge, uh, huge chunk of... Uh, you know what? It's, it's interesting we're talking about this because I think that is what is a big problem with how we educate designers we sell and and i don't know if you guys would agree with me but it sort of sold this um idea that you're gonna i don't know when you're at school you kind of see all these cool designers i mean i i wanted to be a furniture designer when i first started and then i realized that actually there was consumer products was much probably where more the more of the jobs were and i was more likely to get paid for but there's this sort of like view that you're going to be making things look pretty and then you start to learn about what the industry entails and all the stuff that goes with it, ups, good and bad. And you're not really made aware of that at university. Now, I know you only have three, four years to cram a hell of a lot into one course. But I feel that there should be, I don't know, modules should be looked at. And I know every uni is different, but I just think that we should kind of expose in 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 a better way i'm not articulating what i'm meaning very well but i think you get the idea what i'm trying to say um and and just i don't i'm not sure i think that a lot of the people just a lot of the lecturers at university i had some great lecturers but i just don't think that they were exposed to manufacturing and actually how to get a product to market Mm. yeah absolutely i think um uh, Will, you mentioned something earlier about industrial designers coming out to the plant uh, and to see the machines and so on. I think that's super important to do right at the front end, right when you're still just in that idea generation stage to see like, well, what's the, um, what are the limitations of the machine? What, where does that give us an opportunity? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's critical and it's something we, we, we do try and do. Obviously in house, you know, there's only so many times you can go back to the same factory and see mm. the same products being made in this in a similar sort of way but if there's ideas that you're playing with you can you can get that idea very early on of nope this thing won't fly um we're gonna have to change the running order of this assembly mode uh, and that has these knock-on effects but once it's in there and it becomes part of the um ugh, the, the the dna of those early ideas yeah. then hopefully there's like flushing out once you've got once you do hand it over for uh, for product development yeah, I mean, I, I I wonder, like going back to my education thing, I wonder whether universities should, instead of going to Milan for a for a, a, a weekend to go to the design festival, they should be organising like a week in China to get taken around a couple of different factories and, and learn how things are made. Um, I think that our industry is very in, like, there's a lot of fluff, I think we'll all admit. Um, and, and I think if it, the more of the more creative side of stuff and don't get me wrong i miss not doing as much the creative side um is grounded with as as matt was saying with a with a bit of just manufacturing it doesn't need to be extensive just a little bit of manufacturing now of how things fit together and as you said Mm. just just simple like i mean there wasn't a, a 
a mold making module at uni not mold making but just like design for manufacturing like we didn't have any of that we were just sort of i think we were taught in a bit of cad did you like we were missing that but i mean i remember working my absolute backside off all the way through uni and we couldn't have fitted another module in but we could have definitely lost a couple um mm. so yeah, yeah i don't yeah. know all, all uni is obviously different but uh, add an extra layer to that in modern times is it equally now more important for a designer to be learning all about this kind of digital experience the ui the ux that's obviously the latest buzzwords going around now yeah 100 percent. Mm. yeah <laughs> yeah so it, it's that classic thing always pops up on my linkedin of someone you know an industrial designer moaning that digital design is taking the word product design but for any graduate going through the system now i take it you know, it's equally as important to learn about this connected experience you now you talk about the pump and it has a digital element to it that that's is that equally as important as learning how how it's how it's actually physically made massively i mean i i being at lv was the first time i've dealt with I didn't really know what firmware was. It was just something I up, mm. updated on my phone now and again when I had a device that mm. worked with my phone. Mm. And I was like, what a pain mm. in the neck. Now I understand actually <laughs> that it's vital to, to, to getting one to talk to the other. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it, absolutely. I think 100% we live in a connected world now. Um, everything is is being made smart from... I, I mean, mm. the other day I was I was trying to think of a think of something that hadn't been made yet. And I was like, I bought this smart bulb that's up there that works with my Alexa. And then I was like, hang on a minute. Has anyone made a smart window? Yeah, of course they have. You leave, your, <laughs> you leave your windows open. You've got this little thing that you can tell Alexa from the other... When you're in work to yeah. close your windows. I was like... Mm everything is now connected if you want to find something like it's very hard to come up with a product that's not been made made smart in some way so um so no it's vital absolutely 100 i'd also expect though like that if you um if you are uh, an industrial designer or design engineer or something like that where you're considering the, the user experience that no matter what the the manifestation of that whether it's something that's made out of wood or uh, injection model plastic or software firmware then you're still consider you're still coming at it from the same um, the same principles. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. You've got to kind of learn that application, right? So, um, my, my my thought on this is that it's never crossed my path yet, but it will, um, and I'll just have to. I think learn on the fly, same as I have with everything else. I, I think there's been, especially from my sort of cohort at uni, quite a few went into ux design because mm. and i think a lot of industrial designers i mean now there are a more specific ux courses but when i graduated what 11 i graduated there were i don't think there were many out there at that point were there i may be mm. completely wrong mm. excuse me if i am I, I don't know i don't know if there is actually a, a ux degree i'm not sure I, I know there are courses, external courses yeah. like General Assembly you can go to, but I still don't know, and I'm sure someone will comment and correct me, but um, I don't think you can go to a university and, and get a degree in, in user experience. I, I don't think you do, and I, to my knowledge. And I think that's why a lot of product designers have ended up going down that route, quite apart from yeah. the fact they probably get paid more. But um, yeah. <laughs> is the, the, um, the ability, like that, that thought process of, really thinking about the user needs all the buzzwords that we all talk about all the time being able to to flesh those out is an industrial designer's bread and butter that's what you're taught when you first go into uni and and you realize that mm. actually product design isn't just making things look pretty there's a lot more that goes with it um 
so no definitely um it's it's actually really interesting how it's sort of unfolded so i thought i'd throw this question to to drew i suppose and to emma as well what does the future of industrial design look like? I know it's a bit of a broad one. You mentioned on it there, Matt, but what does it look like? What, what is the next two, five, I mean, ten years? It'll change like? its name again. Um, it seems to change its name or the, the overriding presence of, of jobs that occupy that space changes its name. Um, everything was a design engineer when I, when I graduated. Uh, it was a product designer before that. In terms of the, the things that were showing up on my radar, um, but yeah, there does seem to have been more of a more of a pronounced split. That may be just so that it's more driven by search engines, uh, and then I think similarly this this UX business is probably more search engine friendly. Um, mm. So it's just naming culture. The idea is that you are coming up with solutions to problems that people have, uh, and if you're doing that, I don't think the medium really matters. Um, I'd be interested to see where we go after UX, whether that's a swing back. Uh, we kind of mentioned earlier about um, you know the disposable nature of a lot of the products. Um, and really, I'd be interested to see what the knock-on effect of, of design skills are for that. You know, you mentioned safety razors and how your dad started using a safety razor. Well, a couple of years ago, um, I did the same thing. And I've, I've you know, rebelled back into uh, hipster douchebaggery as much as anybody else. Um, but I feel like, yeah, you've got to be able to designed for uh for for cnc and for lathes um and for replaceability as much as you know disposability and for uh and for injection molding or for blister packs or whatever it is um i still feel like there's there's a need for that diversity and that you should be able to take that same ethos and apply it to anything and that's basically at the heart of it for me I think I agree with you there with um, sort of like the environmental impact. Um, I can't sort of speak, obviously, um, from the industrial design sort of point of view, but I know like going off on a tangent now, like my industry in, in interior design, I'd say in the past five years that I've been in interior design, it's every year it's more and more focus on um, the environmental impact of what we're actually designing. So I know a lot of tenders we do at the moment we have to focus on BRIAM, we have to focus on making sure that all the sort of um, uh, all the product specification that we are um, giving have to have um, as little environmental um, impact as possible and I think that's sort of across the board really I don't think that's um, restricted to just interior design I think that's just everywhere now I think it's yeah yeah yeah. really so i think that's probably where everything's headed i don't see mm. it sort of slowing down anytime soon really will and uh, no it really is a question and for some reason it's talking going back to uni again it, it reminds me of i think one of the i think probably the only essay i ever wrote at uni which was the title was is uh, sustainability the death of innovation and i think me and some of my mates, we all sort of clubbed together and had a sit down and chatted about it, uh, probably similar to, to this. And we came up with this sort of theory that, no, it's another hurdle to cross. And it's another thing, like you think of all the different um, sort of periods of design that have happened in, in over history. You've got your Bauhaus, you've got your postmodernism, all of that. I think we're in the sustainability phase and it's down to us mm. to do what we can um, to try and improve 
the products and do what we can. Um, I think, yeah, that th that kind of sums it up. That it's it's another hurdle we have to cross, and it's it's just part of the industry now, um, far more mm. than it ever was. Um, so yeah, there's a effect to you guys now. There is a huge issue around kind of. Uh, it may not be the case over in China, Matt, but there's a big issue here about the manufacturing of ventilators. Um, and I thought I'd be interested to get your take on this, actually, because the government's approach has very much been, let's get the big players. Um, they can manufacture it en masse. They've not necessarily gone down the route of um, going to ventilator manufacturers, for example. They've utilised um, big players in the automotive industry, for example, there could be a couple of reasons why they've done that. We don't know. Um, but there has to be some issues around IP surrounding this, isn't it? Uh, what, uh, from your experience, you know, Drew, Matt, Drew Will, sorry, kind of medical device designer, so his ventilators come within that. The, the thing how is, how we, how, a... patents and IP that should just be open sourced and shared mm -hmm. and manufactured and mm -hmm. bypass any of the ownership and the bullshit and yeah. just get on with, you know what, this thing might not be the 100% best newest version. Uh, and mm. if you guys want to tinker with it, that's fine, but open source the shit out of it and just get it made. Mm. Absolutely. I think the biggest the biggest issue is obviously, um, I mean, like you've got to, how are you going to case this part? Is it going to be, it has to be an off the shelf, um, like out, out of body case, because you can't, um, by the time we've you've like sent the designs to tool, that's like six to eight weeks. Um, mm -hmm. you still, you've then got all the process time of like, like any other consumer product that we make, like all the time qualifying the tool, making sure that everything's in spec, mm. you just can't do that. So it, whatever design is out there, it, the, the internal components, obviously the, the, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, suppliers for that are going to be stretched, but the biggest problem is how, mm. what are you going to put it in? It has to be something off the shelf and. Even if it's off the shelf, there's surely only one tool for it somewhere. Um, like that, that that intrigues me of how companies are going to get around that um, side yeah, of it. Yeah, so yeah. these numbers, yeah. you know, yeah. twenty thousand ventilators. Well, uh, there's just so much design verification and documentation, which is right. It's just just use things that are already yeah. approved. Exactly. Maybe not yeah. a hot new shit. Yeah. Just, so, so these num these numbers then, is it twenty thousand? Is it feasible? Uh, you know. Well, 20,000 is not in, in terms of mass manufacture, 20,000 is not very many. Um, no. So in the medical industry, it, it can, can be quite a bit when the machines get more complicated mm -hmm. just because the volumes aren't there for certain medical machines. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a huge amount. I mean, you get the right factory that has all the components you, and you've got a production line that's well run. You can rattle those out in a couple of weeks. No problem, mm. depending on the complexity of the of the um, ventilator, because obviously some of these ventilators, the ones that are in hospitals are incredibly complex bits of kit. But you can see that some of the hacks that have been out there that I think um, I saw one that Virgin had put together that was literally just taking a manual um, uh, sort of squeezing ventilator and they just made a mechanical cam that, that, that squeezed it. Mm. If that's all that's needed, I, I can't see it being a massive problem. I just don't know enough about it to, to comment on that side of things. But hmm. 20,000 doesn't seem like a huge amount to me. Um, no. It's getting the sourcing the components and getting them to the right factory to assemble them. That I think is the problem. Hmm. Um, hmm. I think where the design thinking 
could have been, or just common sense really, or a bit of planning could have been better utilised is, is further upstream. Um, mm. They're just, you know, we've seen other cases that um, Matt was talking about earlier. We just shouldn't be at these numbers. Mm. This, this demand for this product just shouldn't be there. No. Um, mm. And, you know, with uh, joined up thinking, this this wouldn't be a conversation we'd be having. And that's the that's the real kick in the bollocks mm. about it all is that it's all it, it it's been proven in different countries that it was avoidable. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So, from a general business perspective, um, is it a case of this is just going to be a complete unknown almost right this year off? What, what are what is the future going to be looking like for? for industrial design, more so particularly for the next couple of months. If any, I'm thinking about any graduate designer that's graduating right now, how would you, if you was in that kind of scenario, how would you go about it in terms of kind of learning and that kind of thing? It must be quite a difficult time for anyone, um, particularly at the front of their career right now. I reckon if you're a graduate right now, as we were talking about earlier, I think the best place to do get get out to Asia now, um, but <laughs> for two, for not quite now. But as soon as as soon as this is yeah. over, um, w- w- for one reason, it's great experience, and two because I think um, out there will be a better place to start your career with all this going on because mm. a lot of people straight out of uni are wanting like the, the majority of people are wanting a consultancy job, and there just aren't enough out there. I think no. consultancy is going to be harder hit than in-house and there's going to be even less consultancy jobs. So I would say, yeah, I, I'd say stick with it. Either take a year off go out to, or go out to Asia and try and work out there. But I think it's going to be tough for a graduate in the, in the next year because graduate designers are probably going to be one of the first to be... Well, yeah, who knows, actually? It's cheap design work. Um, it, it could yeah. go the other way. Maybe there's more jobs. I, I just don't know. But... Yeah, consultancies will be hit hard, I think. There'll be more of those internships, I imagine. Yeah. You know, six weeks of working for nothing, maybe minimum wage, for something, you know, for a name that you can get on your CV. Um, the other side is, is yeah, get, get out, go and do something different. Mm. Find a way to differentiate because there are so many graduates every year. And if you don't get, you know, that, that, that dream position, maybe you think your plan is over. Um, but as someone who like receives CVs, I'm always looking for someone that's just done something a bit more interesting. And yeah, um, the last guy that we hired had been out to uh, Singapore and out to Korea, um, doing some work, doing some teaching, doing whatever it takes. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I want someone who's got experience and uh, can show a little bit of um, empathy as much as being able to sketch. What do you make of CVs that come through to you, Drew, from graduates? They're very varied. Hmm. Very varied. But also, I think, like, location-wise, right, we don't get a lot um, in North Wales that come from, uh, let's say, you know, the, the, the top three uni kind of graduates. We don't we don't see those over here, unless they're hmm. from here by chance. Um, yeah, so... that's an interesting one. Uh, just to jump in there, I think... I found it difficult to get an internship when I left uni because I, so I'm from the Welsh borders, um, place, little town called Hay on Wye. And 
I couldn't just like swan up to London for six weeks and like afford to live working for free and just have my travel pay for. So it just wasn't an option. Um, I had to pretty much go straight for looking for a job. Um, I was lucky enough that I, I got obviously the investment in my, my project. But yeah, I think for some people, and that's interesting that you said, I picked up on that because you said you just don't get those people in, in that part of North Wales. But yeah, it's it was for me, it just wasn't really an option to go to a big city and, and work for nothing because I just couldn't afford it. Uh, no, same, time. same. So. Uh, and neither could my dad fuck me or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I just took whatever job um, and thought oh, I'll get two two years work on my CV and then I'll go for the, like the real thing. And mm. um, I was uh, mistaken. Mm. I think that's relevant to like all rural com- uh, like communities. Like I'm the same. I'm from North Wales, and I know uh, like coming from the design background. I have I know a lot of my colleagues and ex-colleagues they've struggled to um kind of progress in their career without relocating and it's really difficult because I know like North Wales is so beautiful and I know some people have moved when they didn't want to but it's that choice isn't it of um do you yeah it, it's it's a choice and it is difficult so i completely agree with you both there that's it's, yeah it's within, industrial, within industrial design though the wider problem is that when i look at the quality of of portfolio of people outside i don't know one or two universities on the whole they don't seem to be that strong i'll be mm. honest with you in terms of um i think that's probably the wider uh issue here is if you actually when you get past laffer and brunel I don't want to have an avalanche of people comment, <laughs> send me messages now from different universities. But um, I've always found that you know they, they can be quite poor. Mm. You know, from a, a general, um, that's not their fault. It's just the way they're being taught. It's the way that um, the way the industry is right now. You know what I mean? And it's interesting that that it's kind of stayed like that. They're kind of the the, the design elite. What you've you've also got uh, Northumberland as well, aren't they? They're they're sort of classed in those sort mm. of top three. But you yeah. get the occasional graduate from all from all the other oh, ones do, yeah. that, that are very exceptional. So it's it's um, it's definitely going to play into it. I think you're right in this next yeah, um, yeah. period um, mm. after this lockdown, how these graduates deal with it. Um, because I won't I won't name any names, but there are definitely companies out there that that will not employ someone mm. that's not from those universities. Yeah, uh, which I, I think is really tough. Yeah, that's definitely. Been, I've been doing this for six years, and that's definitely been the case for the last six years. You know, we will, we do not want to see someone that's not educated here, here, or here. That's pretty, particularly more. I'd say more so agency side than in house. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, that's absolutely terrible. Uh, I mean, I, I get it. I get it that they've got a hell of a lot of. And I mean, Drew, you're saying you get portfolios to look through, and I get it they're getting a hell of a lot to look through. But I just think that's quite sh- mm. like short-sighted. Um, obviously, yeah. says me who went to UE and got a chip on my shoulder. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that is a bit short-sighted. But yeah, I suppose that's just the way it is. Mm. Finally, what is the one bit of portfolio advice you would give? I mean, I don't know. I suppose you're more engin- you're more of an engineer, so I don't know what. If what your portfolio is looking like these days, but what what advice would you what what portfolio advice would you give to anyone now? Uh, oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think keep, what I always keep hearing is when and when people I show my portfolio to people, it's it's showing sort of variation. Um, a lot of people are inclined to just whack polished 
pictures and renders mm. on actually id managers and design managers engineering managers they want to see how you've got from a to b and all that bit mm. in the middle it may not look that polished to you but actually that's what they're mainly interested in um mm. i don't know i think that's probably the best bit i can give apologies if it's any good <laughs> if it's not any good <laughs> true um yeah i want to see the work i don't want to see the finished result i want to see um it doesn't even have to be from one project you know a, a, a finished glossy render is always exciting right because it's it shows the final form and all of that type of thing but i want to see like what's the bit of research what's the what's the use steps and how have you used that to make decisions you know i want to i want to see what have you learned and how did you inform decisions and then what did you pull out at the end of it rather than just loads of nice looking renders um, be it by hand or by key shot. Well, that was really enjoyable. I hope everyone um, got something out of that. It was real eye-opener for me. Um, special thanks to Matt and to Will. And sorry that we lost so much of the audio from the from the interview. But luckily, uh, I think we kind of we got through. We got some good ground. Um, and I think we'll have to have both of uh, both of those guys back again. Uh, special thanks to Brad and to Emma, without whom this thing just wouldn't exist. And thanks to you all for listening. That's very cool. If you could share it and. Um, and, and like and yeah give us a shout out and um, give us some comments ask us some questions get involved we want to try and make this uh, a live and interactive type of gig so uh, yeah cool peace out see you later